Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And today we've uh, got a full program. We're going to... uh, uh, Later on in the program, we're going to talk to Don Sutherland about exploitation taxes and penalty rates. You'll be aware that July the 1st is the the, uh, date of the uh, removal of uh, penalty rates for a lot of our uh, most vulnerable and uh, lowest paid workers in Australia, thanks to the federal government and the Fair uh, Work Commission uh, and the uh, employer groups that argued that uh, Saturday and Sunday are no different from any other day. And anyway, we are going to employ so many more people if we don't pay people a living wage. (laughs) Well, we're going to see how that affects society. but uh, we'll be talking to Don about this later on at about half past eight. Uh, we're going to go up to Queensland. We're going to have a yarn with uh, Duncan Hart, who is a student, a part of the National Union of Students in at Queensland University. They're, they've been having a, a tussle over the uh, uh, CEO from Dow Chemical Company uh, giving the uh, Queensland and University and the university uh, accepting $40 million donation for a building that's going to be named after him. Now, you'll remember that uh, Dow Chemical Company are the uh, company that uh, produced Agent Orange and uh, uh, and Napalm. Uh, and uh, there's a suggestion that if they wanted to do good works, then they might like to actually put some money into the people who were affected in Vietnam and also even our local Faulkner area, which has a uh, polluted uh, uh, area that needs to be rehabilitated. Interestingly enough, the building that they want to uh, name after this fellow is going to be devoted to sustainability. Uh, They don't understand irony quite clearly. (laughs) uh, But before that, We're going to uh, take you to the streets of Melbourne where there was the anti-fascist rally last Sunday. Very interesting and disturbing little affair. And uh, But before that, we're going to kick off with an interview with uh, Thor. What a great name, hey? Fancy having a first name called Thor. Thor Nguyen-Writer, who is the director of Disaster Capital... uh, 
Disaster Capitalism, which is a film that's on the program for the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, you'll know uh, uh, perhaps about the book that was uh, authored by uh, Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony Lowenstein is the uh, journalist who uh, is uh, centre stage in this particular production. They went across the world uh, t- looking at ways that uh, the capitalist world uh, is um, making money effectively out of disaster. But uh, before we move on, I've got to remind you. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377. Or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. And thanks very much to those people who uh, donated to the Solidarity Breakfast Kitty. We're, we haven't quite reached our target, but we're getting closer. We've got 80% of our target, uh, the, um, which is kind of a little bit reflective of the overall target. Uh, 3CR has made about 200000 but it needs to make 250000 So if uh, you're out there and you're able to involve yourself in that fundraising activity, we would greatly... Uh, We'd be very grateful for any contributions. And as I said, thank you very much for those people who have contributed. I uh, thank you from uh, the bottom of my heart. Uh, as I said, uh, coming up uh, on starting on the 6th of July, going to the 14th of July, is the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. And on the 7th of July, there's going to be a screening, and it's the... Um, of Disaster Capital, which is about uh, the underbelly of the global aid and investment industry. And it's in a program that should interest you, uh, I think, because it's going to be in a program with a film called Dream Empire, which is about uh, a remote Chinese ghost town's international booming cities tricking visitors into buying overpriced property. It sounds a fascinating kind of real estate market scam uh, set in um, China. And remember, this is a documentary. It's not a feature. Uh, It's not a drama. (laughs) And uh, then there's, it's also going in that same program is Brexitania. If you didn't catch it at the Sustainability Festival, uh, Brexitania is a film about why Great Britain voted to leave the EU. And uh, expat Melbourne filmmaker Timothy George uh, Kelly's documentary explores the wider issues behind the shock move from both competing perspectives, which is quite interesting. So this is a very interesting program that's going to be held on Saturday the 7th of July at a place called uh, 1 Yarra Street, South Yarra. It doesn't have any other, uh, other... So you just go to that place. One Yarra Street, South Yarra, and it starts at two forty-five PM. But anyway, let's hear from Thor about his uh, filmmaking exploits. I was one of the people who did the um, uh, transcripts for Disaster Capital. Oh, Capitals. thank you. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I found it really fascinating the interviews, and you got to speak to quite a few really interesting people. Uh, and so, getting to see the film. 
was a bit of an eye-opener to me because there was obviously huge amounts of material. How did you actually uh, craft the film into uh, after getting so much material? Yeah, that's. I think in documentary, that's one of the biggest challenges is to um, you know know what to exclude. Um, and for a film like this, I mean, three very different countries with a similar experience, um, that was um, that was a challenge because they could have been three separate films. Uh, but we felt very strongly from the outset that this was one story, but told through three different countries with um, unique experiences in their own in their own. Um, but there's a common denominator, which is uh, the voices that are that are driving the conversation of how international aid and investment is uh, administered. So uh, you can kind of get lost in each country uh, as a storyteller, or as a filmmaker. Um, and so that that um, that was the biggest challenge that, that we found was uh, not getting lost in the weeds and making a story that is so so dense that um, we would lose our audience because um, from from within within on the inside of telling the film um, everything to us was interesting uh, and important. So um, we had a we had a just by the nature of the production schedule of the film we had a lot of time to to mull it over uh, to watch to analyze what we were doing and you know to make adjustments so that we weren't repetitive or we weren't um, just getting lost in the minutia um, and, you know, having some outside voices and eyes uh, helping us guide us through the way was a, was a very helpful, was a very ha- helpful aspect of the, of the production or post-production. Now, Anthony Lowenstein's book preceded the film or was done after the film? We, when Anthony and I were introduced to one another, we were introduced by a, a fellow journalist and um, I had already been working on the Afghanistan p- portion of the story. Um, at the time, that's all that I was working on. And I, I guess I was sort of at, um, I was at a place where I didn't know how that story was going to find its way out into the world. Um, Anthony was going to Afghanistan to work on Prophets of Doom. Um, and we just, as journalists do, we were talking about Afghanistan and, you know, things that I had experienced and people that he maybe should talk to um, and just sharing, sharing what I knew. Um, and he started telling me that uh, of, of Prophets of Doom and what he was trying to accomplish in this big, you know, global look at, at uh, vulture capitalism. And um, he told me about Papua New Guinea he told me about um, looking at prison system in Australia and um, the other countries, you know, going to Pakistan. Um, and then he also mentioned that he was going to go to Haiti uh, in September of that year, it was 2012, um, and mentioned that he was shooting some footage along the way. So we, that was our starting point of our, of our partnership. Um, I watched the material that he had shot, and it was... Um, you know, it was very fascinating, the Papua New Guinea, especially because I knew nothing of the story, which um, which is which is a bit um, of a I guess of a concerning thing. that such a major event happened and I'd never even heard of it as most people that I know hadn't heard of it. Um, oh, and not only that. Australia. Yeah. And not only that, they won on the ground. Yes. 
that's the key to that particular Bougainville incident. Yes. And, um, and then when he said that he was going to Haiti, um, we started talking a little bit more seriously and we decided that we would, um, we would join forces and, and make a film while he was researching and writing his book. Um, so, so are you took, both jo- journalists? Like he is a journalist, but what about, are you a journalist as well? Yes. Uh, I got into journalism through documentary filmmaking, um, for a very long time, I, I was working on films and then uh, mainly historical films. And um, I started working on more contemporary stories for the, the PBS show called Frontline. And um, those, those films are predominantly made by journalists. And I started working with journalists and there was always this sort of joking conversation going on that um, you know, they would say I wasn't a journalist because I didn't have a degree in journalism. Uh, and, uh, you know, I sort of hit back and say, well, you're not a filmmaker. And, um, <laughs> it was, it was all in good fun. But, um, then, uh, eventually I did get a journalism degree. So I guess I'm certified now. <laughs> well, we're both journalists cause I have too. So, so there, uh, but anyway, the, the real point of the matter is that, uh, uh, a lot of that, uh, journalism actually has pointers around what they consider to be newsworthy mm. and uh and uh that's not necessarily what you're aiming to do uh when you're looking at an overview of a very complex economic system that is actually sucking the marrow out of the bones of uh people who are oppressed that's the case isn't it effectively it- it is. And I think in, in documentary filmmaking, you know, there's this conversation that's always going on. It's like, what is documentary? What isn't a documentary? Um, and I think it's a healthy conversation to have because it just shows that there's an awareness. And so I, I take a journalistic approach to documentary filmmaking. And yes, the, you know, the, news, the newsworthiness or the news peg um, is something that you want to think about how you can tie that into the film that you want to make. Um, this is very relevant. It's been relevant for 30, 40 years, and it's going to continue to be relevant. But we didn't want to get, you know, I don't want to get caught up in making a news story. Um, and how do you make it watchable? And I think that um, that was one of the driving forces is, is how do we not make a talking head film, although it is partially that. But how do we put a face, you know, um, to this story um, and through, you know, our three main characters and in, in one in each country? That was what we really wanted to do. And, and I think that breaks away from the news, the newsiness of a film. And, you know, part of that is we we wanted to try and allow different voices to tell the story. Um, and those are the voices that we feel you don't you don't read in the newspaper and you don't see in your traditional news story. Um, and, uh, um, well, you, you, you know, get to, along. You, you get yeah. to humanize the story. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. But humanize it from the perspective of people who live in those countries, uh, people who are from those countries, people that are affected. Um, you know, you have, a, you can have an aid practitioner or uh, a government bureaucrat that's living in that country. Well, you know, they're going to rotate out in three years. So their, their knowledge is, is limited just by that very fact. Um, and also there's, you know, there's not so much of a, you know, a natural emotional uh, connection to what's going on in the country. 
Um, so it is humanizing it, but I think it's humanizing it, um, you know, in a more authentic way uh, than from, you know, a Western perspective or somebody from a developing country. Well, it's, it's, um, because there are a lot of people because there are a lot of people from from like the United States or Australia or from a European country. And they do have a, a very strong emotional connection. But there's always that sense that, you know, they're going to leave and they can leave whenever they want. Yeah, and it, I, I recently saw the new installment of Sakaro, and there's a killer line in that particular film where he says, and he's talking about the war between Mexico and uh, United States or the land that United States stole from Mexico <laughs> uh, in the past. Uh, but he says they, uh, that that wall's good for business, he said. And um, which I thought was uh, a really fascinating line. Uh, and uh, in a way, that's what disaster capitalism is really about, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's, um, you know, the it's aid. Aid is, uh, you know, we think the perception is that it's 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 uh, for good. It's for um feeling that we're doing something to right the wrongs in the world. But when you get below that initial feeling, you see that quite quickly um, it, it is about business. It's about uh, putting contracts on the books. It's about the exchange of money. Uh, it's about justifying how you're spending the money and not necessarily in the results, but in keeping the cash flow going. And um, that's a hard thing to put a put in video or put into a film. But, um, you know, we, we had interviewed John Sopko, who's the special inspector general of Afghanistan reconstruction. And, you know, he, he, he quite succinctly and without any hesitation, he, he, um, he describes that to us in, in the interview that we had with him. And he's been investigating, um, the money spent in Afghanistan for, for a number of years now. And, and, um, you know, he has really, these really great reports, but, you know, what does the government and Congress do about it? Um, that's yet to be seen. Yeah, because I guess uh, there's different reasons for why different power elites do what they do. There is. Um, the, yeah, and then you, start, and then you start talking about, you know, um, where, where are they located? Are they located um, from the giving end or the, from the receiving end? Um, and... I had a discussion recently about this uh, after a screening of the film, and, and there was a little bit of pushback saying that, well, you're talking about corruption. It's like, well, we're the ones who are making the corruption happen. It's not the politicians and the people in power in those countries. It's something that we're forcing onto them. And I, and I think it's a very um, good argument to make and one that's worth having. Um, so I, I guess, you know, power corrupts, but I guess money also corrupts. And then who's who's in that conversation and who isn't? And when you're looking at it as a whole, it's a very small number of people who are making those decisions and who are benefiting from that exchange of money um, and deals and contracts. And uh, I think it happens on both sides. In you know, the countries where the aid's being administered, people are just complete, you know, by and large are being kept out of receiving the benefit of that money. And then on the giving side, you know, too many of us, um, I would say a vast majority, just have no idea of how money is, be is being given in our name. 
Each year, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival curates world-class, local and international features direct from some of the hottest, most prestigious documentary film festivals in the world, like Cannes, Doc New York City, South by Southwest and Sundance. This year, opening night is on Friday the 6th of July at 7pm at Cinema Nova Carlton. The festival kicks off with Film Worker, the incredible true story of Stanley Kubrick's mysterious assistant. For more details, go to mdff.org.au. See you there. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Yes, and you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we were just listening to a chat I had with uh, Thor Nurat, who's the director of Disaster Capital. The uh, screening of uh, Disaster Capital, and it's the world premiere of the documentary, is going to be on at uh, the 7th of uh, July, Saturday the 7th of July, next week, I think. And uh, it starts at 2.45pm, a program of films. I think it's the second in a program of three features and it's at uh, 1 Yarra Street, South Yarra and Thor is going to be there so if you want to have more discussions about that particular issue then you can have a yarn with Thor. Now uh, we're going to now go to the uh, fascist, anti-fascist rally that happened on the 24th of the 6th in Melbourne. Uh, It was a very interesting affair. I went there and Uh, Unlike the previous years, I'd have to say that it was kind of like a victory for the police. There were so many police there and the two parties, the fascists and the anti-fascists, were actually kept quite separate from each other. But when I went there, I had a yarn with some of the people from the anti-fascist group because uh, 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 I wanted to know why they were there and what were the issues at stake. G'day Debbie, can you tell me what's going on here today? Today um, a neo-Nazi group called the True Blue Crew are um, holding what they call a um, Aussie flag pride march. Now they did this exactly a year ago as well. So a year ago was their first, this is their second. And so um, campaign against racism and fascism and also um, many anarchists who are also organizing themselves are countering this as we did last year. We expect that the police who are already, you know, here in their huge numbers to be protecting the fascists as they did last year. Um, And we're here to be saying that they're... Aussie flag pride march is really just code for the the fascist ideology of being um, a violence against all groups, whether they be First Nations or Muslims or women or LGBTIQ, etc., etc. So we're here to once again stop them. They're going to attempt to march through the city. Um, as they did last year. So that's what today is about. It's another occasion where the fascists are trying to group themselves together. They're continuing to try to build a movement. And we're here yet again, as we have been for the last three years, to stop them from being able to do that. It was a very big uh, rally against fascism last year, and it was... Uh, I was here and uh, the police used uh, pepper spray uh, against people who actually 
I observed not doing anything at all. Uh, it was actually quite chaotic. It's a much smaller group of people today. Uh, do you think uh, the way it was handled last year might have had an effect on numbers? That's very hard to say, actually. Um, I would, I guess this is just guesswork, but um, I would say that what happened last year would, in fact, be making a lot of people far more angry. But um, what you're saying is is really important because um, I think it's, well, I know that it's showing that um, we're not only facing um you know, an ongoing fascist threat, but we're also facing far more police repression. And last year, what the police had done was that they had turned the whole city into a designated zone, which means that they can stop and search. They've done the same thing today, and we're certainly expecting that same behavior from the police as well, because they are openly protecting the fascists against us, um, and they are going to be using their ever-increasing powers against us. It may affect some people's decisions as to whether they, you know, come to counter the fascists or not, but it certainly, if anything, um, motivates others to be coming to counter the fascists. I was interested that uh, Channel 7 uh, has been a continual uh, uh, giving positive uh, reportage to the uh, organisations that you've come here to counter, they're here today, uh, as well as the police being over on the corner there videoing the group of people here. Yes, well, um, again, a bit of a, um, what can you say, a, uh, a banding together of the, um, of the police and the mainstream media. I mean, this is something, again, that's been the situation over the last three years because the mainstream media has... Yeah pretty much alibied the fascists, as the police have, by um, pushing out that line that what um, we're dealing with is two extreme extremist groups. And that uh, it's an issue of freedom of speech. Freedom of speech, exactly. So the fascists have freedom of speech. We say everybody has freedom of speech, but we have the freedom of speech to counter them. But this is something that neither the media nor the police want to address. So it's, it's um, yes, the propaganda out there coming from the powers that be, and the media being the mouthpiece for the powers that be is to put out that message publicly uh, for people to understand that uh, we're all just a bunch of dangerous people. Um, there's no distinction, they say, between fascists and anti-fascists. Hate speech versus a community. Exactly, exactly. And, and um, the community that is um, defending each other, defending ourselves, as we have to, because we know history. We know what happened 80 years ago. So it's very clear what we have to do as a community, as an anti-fascist community. And um, so we're going to continue. And it's really, it's, it's great to be able to have this opportunity to be speaking to an alternative media because our message has to get out. It's a very important message to be drawing more and more people out to counter the fascists because we're all in the front line, no matter what group in society we may belong to. Can I ask you why you've come? I'm from 3CR. Yeah, certainly. Can you tell me why you've come here today? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm Alison. I'm from the Freedom Socialist Party. The Freedom Socialist Party has a 
decades-long history um, of organising uh, to stop neo-Nazis and fascists uh, dating right back to the um, campaigns uh, in the 90s which shut down um, a fascist bookshop in Faulkner and uh, we believe um, very, very strongly that it is important um, that we stop the far-right fascists, neo-Nazis when they're still small. We have to stop them um, from putting down roots and um, building a mass movement uh, because ultimately their goal is to crush um, all of our democratic rights. And um, So you don't see it as an uh, issue of freedom of speech? Um, oh, look, our view um, very much um, is that we are here exercising our right of free speech today. Um, we, you know, like don't call on the state to limit um, anybody's free speech. Our counter-protest is about our free speech. Um, we are saying that we do not want bigotry, we do not want hate speech, and we know that those who are um, marching with their like Aussie flag march, that um, they will use... Um, They will use a host um, of tactics to scapegoat. Sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, uh, law and order hysteria, all of these things. So we say we must stand against them. If anyone's paid attention to this campaign through the last few years, the way that the media has approached it, I think it's just worth keeping in mind just how hostile the media has been to all this and how much support they've given, and just free advertising for the other side. Shame. Whether it's from, you know, the puff piece in Sunrise, where they interviewed the so-called concerned mums and dads of Reclaim Australia, you know, that early racist rally back in 2015, or whether it's Blair Cottrell being given a platform to argue his fascist views on the drum on ABC, or, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the global media talking about, you know, hipster fascists, any number of things you could name. And I think... One thing to really keep in mind is that, you know, after the Charlottesville rally, when, you know, the far right mobilised with their tiki torches, chanting, you know, Jews will not replace us, blood and soil, all of this, and managed, one of them drove a car into the counter-protesters and actually killed one of them, Heather Heyer, who was a a left-wing activist. After this, Donald Trump came out and said, there are very good people on all sides of this, so shame on that. I think we should keep in mind that his, his words on this and him saying that, you know, there's kind of very, very good and very bad people on both sides is basically the exact same thing that our media says about this in Australia. The people who sit in their offices and write newspaper columns that say the people over there who want to goose step their way through Melbourne Street saying we want violent activity against all oppressed people, we want harsher and more violent action against, you know, immigrants, against African kids, These people are the same as the people on this side who are saying, no, we don't want that, we won't stand for that, we will stand in solidarity with everyone. You know, they just want to say that we're the same as them. It's the the horseshoe theory. I think we should just call absolute bullshit on that. Can I get a bullshit? Bullshit! Thank you. That was almost loud enough for hopefully some of them to hear.
I think we should all bear this in mind because inevitably after rallies like this there'll be a shit piece put out in something like the Age or definitely the Herald Sun. And I think everyone who's standing here today should be very proud to have to be shit canned like fine papers like that. So we need a chant. Unite! Unite! Unite to fight the right! Black! Indigenous! Now that's the uh, rally that was held, the anti-fascist rally that was held on the 24th of uh, June and it was a Sunday, last Sunday, and uh, there were about 300 or so anti-fascist uh, uh, demonstrators. There were about 70 or so uh, drew, uh, true blue crew and I went down there to check out what these characters were saying and uh, caught them, uh, Cattrall saying things like Ericsson saying... Um, uh, this is an issue of defending white Australian culture and where the real workers movement. And I think that's the thing that you should be really disturbed about. But the other thing that was most disturbing was the level of police involvement. Uh, they had worked out uh, a strategy to ensure that uh, none of the uh, groups got close together. They'd cordoned off the uh, area in front of the Parliament House with uh, plastic um Bollards. They uh, actually uh, ran alongside of the uh, True Blue crew as they raced along uh, Russell, uh, Exhibition Street and then up to Burke Street. Uh, they, they flanked them in their, uh, uh, you know, the special response crew clothing, which are sort of like lizard suits. And uh, then the uh, after that, the um, uh, uh, Ericsson did an interview with Channel Seven News, and then turned around and had a little yarn with his his fellows. Uh, uh, he wears uh, tradey clothes, you know, uh, impeccably clean tradey clothes, as if he's, you know, a nice young man, buff, you know, good working class fellow, but there's no soil on his clothes. And then they fluttered their flags, many Australian flags, and romped down the top of Spring Street back to the Exhibition Gardens. Apparently afterwards, uh, uh, full of themselves, they went and had a drinking uh, drink at one of the pubs and then started to harass a, uh, cl uh, a clown performer down at Federation Square and caused a ruckus, you know, uh, and filmed themselves being um, absolute, uh, uh, calling him a pedophile because he was wearing a pink leotard, that sort of thing. Uh, it's a real example of uh, why these people are incredibly dangerous because they're violent. It's violence on a stick. Anyway, uh, we're moving to Queensland. We're going to talk to Duncan Hart now, and Duncan's on the line, and he's going to explain why we're got him out of bed at this time of the morning. G'day, Duncan. Yeah, How are so you? I hope so. <laughs> I'm good, thanks. Yeah. How did you... Now, you, you're a, um, you're part of the... Uh, you, you've been elected as part of the uh, student union. 
at Queensland University and uh, you're amongst people who have sent an open letter to the uh, University Council saying that you object to uh, the accepting of $40 million donation from the, from the CEO of the uh, of uh, Dow Chemical Company. Do you want to give us some background to this? Yeah, so the <coughs> CEO of Dow Chemical Company is a alumni of UQ. His name's Andrew Liveris, um, and he's been with the company since the 1970s, but he's only been CEO since 2004. Um, and just a couple of weeks back, it was announced that he's giving this generous donation of $40 million to UQ to build a new building, uh, which will be named after himself. Um, and it will also be uh, like housing a centre for sustainability within the building. Um, As I said to the listeners, so, uh, people like this don't yeah. have any sense of irony. Yeah, that's right, because Dow Chemical Company is the famous manufacturer of um, napalm during Vietnam, the Vietnam War, but also one of the manufacturers of Agent Orange. Um, so they were, this, and this is a, this is actually only one of the few things that this is the most horrific things I should say that they they're responsible for. As a, as a chemical company, they've manufactured um, many plastics. They've manufactured many pesticides. Uh, they've been in, they've been implicated in a bunch of environmental. Um, catastrophes. They've actually um, bought up the company that was responsible for the Bhopal disaster in mm. India in the 80s. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the worst industrial disaster in history. <laughs> yes. So they're, they're a horrific company with their environmental record is absolutely disgusting. And so, so we, the, the open letter was to uh, op- oppose this decision by the university to um, uh, celebrate the legacy, as if it has anything to do with sustainability of Andrew Liveris. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a, it, I mean, it's happening in on Queensland's uh, university campus, but it it's got a, a well, it's a well trod and path for uh, people and companies to try and cleanse capitalism through uh, philanthropy. It's true, isn't it? Uh, I, I think so. Well, there's in fact, it's a huge element of um, uh, UQ's fundraising campaign. It's ironically called uh, Not If When, as if giving it some sort of, you know, I don't know, semi-progressive gloss, like, oh, you know, don't wait to make a change. It's like, yeah, well, apparently giving, apparently $40 million from a, um, yeah, corporate uh, villain like Liveris is somehow something that should be inspiring to people. But um, yeah, he was actually used for about two weeks as their, unlike their website where they get people to donate to the university as they're like, you know, this is this inspiring example that people should follow. Um, so, yes. You, you, so, but there's other, there's many other ties around those sort of corporate corporations at the university level. Yeah. And of course, universities are supposed to be uh, give a kind of a. Um, a stamp of approval because they're supposed to be pinnacles of uh, prestige mm. and uh, academic um, uh, whatever, you know. <laughs> it's, it's sort of tainting the university uh, name as well, I guess. Well, I think it does bring into question the issue of, like, well, 
Well, people, people think about the, as you said, the, people think about the university as having a form, some sort of integrity, being committed to, um, I guess, like the pursuit of knowledge or at least like um, facts that aren't immediately tainted by corporate <laughs> connections. And I think that um, this example sort of shows that the university is willing to sacrifice um, quite a lot of that integrity in order to receive um, corporate backing. But I, I think, though, that there's a lot of things that illustrate that the university um, doesn't just sort of um, operate... When I say the university, I, mean, I don't just mean UQ, but many other universities don't just operate on the basis of what's um, beneficial for society or anything like that because they are so structured around what's in the interests of um, Australian capitalism, ultimately. Um, so, like, part of the thing that's come out of this, uh, the campaign against this donation has actually been uh, revealing much broader connections the university has, UQ in particular, in my case, with um, the military and other arms companies. And it's very extensive. So, that, yeah, that, I was going to bring that up because uh, the, uh, your, uh, the people supporting this is not just your student council but uh, National Union of Students and the Greens. Uh, and it's yeah. been uh, part of a, uh, a dis, uh, uh, um, the establishment of a, a campaign group called Disarm UQ which I presume is uh, will probably uh, may have uh, reflections on other campuses as well. Is that right? Yeah, so there's actually a, um, the beginnings of the national movement uh, called um, Disarm Universities and, and also Books Not Bombs, um, which is just being supported by the National Union of Students, but is also being organised on a grassroots level across different campuses. And um, it just reflects that almost every university in Australia has some connections to the Australian military. And um, UQ is very, you know, like I guess they're up to their elbows in it because they've um, they're, they're involved with the largest, the largest foreign um, U.S. Department of Defense research project, which is the um, the high fire missile program which is basically like an attempt to create um, the latest, fastest rocket. And they've already tested rockets that um, are faster than the... Uh, like 2,000 kilometres an hour faster than the um, ICBMs that exist today. So that's pretty freaky. Um, so, so what you're saying here... Oh, sorry. So, uh, yeah, so so what you're really saying is, and it, this is uh, probably not news to... Uh, the audience that's listening here, mm. that universities, and universities have always been like this uh, since the American mm. uh, uh, empire took ascendancies. I, I mean, I presume, I don't know what it was like before that, but people would uh, be CIA officers one moment and then professors at a university at the next, if you actually did any digging, which is a bit curious. Uh, uh, but... Um, Universities uh, are being uh, uh, made the servant of the military, effectively, because the as government funding is removed, uh, they just become uh, research units for uh, big business. Well, there's definitely 
I think a connection between those things. If if for, if if um, society and sort of um, there's not that sort of sense that universities are just being funded for some sort of public benefit, then of course they're going to be more and more um, attuned to whatever wherever they can get funding. And there's never as a never-ending pile of money for um, military research. It was actually announced last year by Chris Pine as the Minister for Defence Industry that the Australian government's going to be allocating $730 million to the so-called Next Generation Technology Fund, which is actually just a fund to fund military research over the next 10 years. So, you know, at the same time as they're saying they've got to cut $2.2 billion in funding, um, they've, just in, they've just increased the hex repayment threshold for students so that now students are repaying their student debt after just forty-two thousand, after earning just forty-five thousand dollars, sorry. Um, but at the same time as they're making these cuts, the government can still afford to shelve out seven hundred thirty million dollars. It's it's appalling. And then this is only just a, like a new announcement. There's many many other ways that there's an ongoing connection. Like there's um, uh, anyone who wants to go into the military can actually have their entire university paid for for free mm. and receive payments while they're studying so like they can receive a full-time wage while they're studying um, engineering or medicine uh, say and then once they've um, graduated they get an automatic job with the military so it's um there's many many ways that it's called social engineering yeah yeah i would say that social engineering is exactly right and it's interesting because it's got parallels with Sydney University's cha- Chancellor being uh, on the board of Thales. Well, yes, that's right. That's another very important, high-publicised example. But there's there's actually a lot of... Almost all universities have these extensive connections with all manner of... Yeah, yeah. Um, Melbourne University uh, takes funding from um, Lockheed Martin. Mm, there you go. There you go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's well, fun, fun work. Um, yeah. UQ is very connected with Boeing. It's actually got a, um, it's actually got a centre for Boeing on the campus that employs thirty full-time staff. Well, on there you Boeing. go. <laughs> there you yeah. go. So, how did your uh, demonstration go on uh, Thursday? You you actually went to the outside the uh, the new Queensland University's Senate. They like to call themselves fancy mm. names. And they, yes, like, yes. <laughs> they like to act as if they're part of some democracy from the ancient world. So what did, what actually mm. happened on the day? Um, yeah, well, we had a good demonstration outside, um, uh, made some noise to make sure that people in the meeting heard us. There was a, We did speak to at least one person who was actually a senator. Um, most of the people in the Senate are... Uh, uh, not 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 elected representatives of students or staff. They're just um, heads of industry. Um, Are they exclusively yes, to... head of industry? Are they exclusively from the business class? Do you know? Um, no, no. There's a well. So, okay, if I remember, there's approximately a dozen people, and then there'd be one student representative, one staff representative, right. and then there's the administration. Represented by the um, vice chancellor and chancellor, um, oh. but then most of the other people are all just people who are connected to um, big business. Mm, interesting. But anyway, okay. the um, 
Yeah, that's the composition of it. So the um, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, the, the demonstration I think went well, um, and we we actually just received last night some notice that they did um, the demonstration that they actually sort of felt compelled to discuss the open letter, but that that you know I suppose unfortunately and surprisingly they did say all, all we've heard so far from that meeting was that they just they determined that they did not have any reason to. Um, not accept the donation and to and not to proceed with the naming of the building after Andrew Liveris. So I guess the campaign will be continuing to try to um, reverse that. But yes, that's the um, that's the status of it now. I know this is a bit left uh, left of field, but I wonder if he, if uh, Hitler had decided to give them that amount of money, if they'd been so happy to put his name on the building too. <laughs> Yes, well, <laughs> they probably mutual, would. They probably would. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for getting up and uh, uh, telling us about what's going on, and good luck with uh, the uh, disarm uh, Q- uh, QU, uh, because uh, this is a really, really important issue. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the program, and yeah, and also like any listeners interested who are from Melbourne should check out their local disarm groups and um, try and get involved. There's definitely lots happening down there as well. Thanks, mate. Sorry? Yeah, I'm Brian. This is Nigel. How you going? Happy Natal Week. And yeah, we're just going to do a bit of solo on the DJ. Beautiful. In July 2018, 3CR proudly presents Beyond the Bars coming to you right across NAIDOC Week. Beyond the Bars is Australia's only live prison radio broadcast giving a voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates. On Monday, July 9th, we're live from Deer Park Women's Prison from 11am. On Tuesday, July 10th, we're at Barwon Prison from 11 till 2. On Wednesday, July 11th, you can hear from the men at Fulham between 12 and 2 and then catch the men from Loddon Prison between 2 and 4. On Thursday, July 12th, we're live from Port Phillip Prison. And on Friday, our final broadcast for the week is from Marguerite Correctional Centre between 11 and 2. Make sure you tune in for Beyond the Bars 2018, Monday, July 9th through to Friday, July 13th, celebrating NAIDOC Week with the men and women inside. A weak solidarity, Ricky team listener, when this dispute between the left and right of the Socialist Party over who most loves the great corporates and the filthy rich led the caring business class, not particularly a hyper-excited minister for spending fortunes on weapons of mass destruction, Christopher Payne in there, to confect a split in the Socialist Party, a leadership challenge no less, over critical socialist policy like loving the great corporate sector. As the leader of its out-of-control left, Anthony All Profits Been Easy showed just how out of control the left is by declaring the socialists must love business big and small, love the great corporates, and somehow this showed a split with Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, whom Christopher told us was the enemy of the great corporates because he refuses to give them trillions in tax cuts. I will not condone tax cuts for the filthy rich corporates. Little Billy made his position clear until I'm Big Supremo. And the Storm Inn lured all these Socialist Party ministers to assure us they all loved small business and big business and the filthy rich equally. There is no split 
We always consult with the sundry chambers of profits and great corporate barons before determining our position on issues that affect them like workers' wages and conditions and the extreme demands of union bosses. Well, in fact, all issues affect our corporate very, very, very close friends, so we consult them on all issues and balance those issues with those we, re those we represent as champions of the working class. Well, Al Anthony All Profits Been Easy, who knows left policy number one is to love the great corporates, must suffer real hardship on his shadowy minister, minister parliamentary salary as he discusses the problems of the destitute over breakfast with his partner, the numbers person for the New South Wales right, a former deputy premier still also suffering poverty on her parliamentary salary, a household salary of not much more than half a million dollars. So real empathy. Imagine their caring breakfast conversations. Still it shows an out of control left socialist can cohabit with a right socialist which is so encouraging, a warm inner glow holding out hope for the world. Last week we showed a little bit of scepticism over that new caring business class policy to privatise the ABC in the interests of media balance, reminding ourselves that big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull and the team have denied the policy is the policy. Me think yon Malcolm doth protest too much. We questioned whether the ABC was a commie front rather than a centre-right outlet, which to Malcolm and large swathes of his team in particular seems like a commie front anyway, but then the ABC removed the fragile, tattered cloak of neutrality and exposed its bias, proving the government's case as it turned Senator Erica Betts on the bosses loose on the microphone to put the ABC is a commie long-haired agit prop front case. Clearly a Machiavellian leftist plot, knowing he'd make a complete twit of himself, which he did, of course. The ABC is an affront to all fair-minded, clear-thinking, true blue Aussies, and an insult to all who love the dear baby Jesus, and to the dear baby Jesus himself. We also left telecommunications success story up for us, you suckers, handing World Cup matches to public free-to-air SBS for a day or two. SBS, from which it took the right to all matches to give its customers the satisfaction of paying for what was previously free. Handing for a day or two, while it sorted out a few technical glitches, like rewarding those who forked out their hard-earned with a blank screen. About then, the Operasio Sucker Supremo said its World Cup coverage was an excellent product, leaving us to ponder what he might consider a slightly imperfect product, indeed a disaster. Or conversely, the public SBS product must be in the excellent product stratosphere. And the big Supremo described it as an excellent product while announcing SBS would now show all games for at least the next week or so. And by yesterday, announcing SBS would now show all games, period. Due to the excellent product still trying to sort out the glitches, leaving us also to ponder how the bloated, inefficient public free-to-air channel could show every game, while the super-efficient private sector opt-for-us-you suckers still had its technicians scratching their heads looking at the excellent product on the blank screens, along with those who'd forked out their hard-earned. Let's hope all that doesn't destroy competition policy or our faith in privatisation in the great corporate sector providing public services for an appropriate fee. 
US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor's consistent inconsistency almost reached new heights or, or depths depending how we look at it, or at least let's be fair, apparent inconsistency. As last, last week, well you didn't hear it but it was in there, we praised Donald for tearing non-dear little children away from their criminal parents attempting to invade the US of and destroy its way of life, the, the envy of all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. But then we discovered Donald wasn't ripping non-dear little children and babies from their evil, illegal, criminal parents, but was bringing families together by making parents and children appreciate each other even more. Separation makes the heart grow. And Donald's heart all but burst at the sight of riven families. It was a horrible thing, bad, bad, like the horrible things his predecessor had done, which so upset Donald. Bit of a pity he didn't say which horrible things, because there's no way he would have just made it up. And we know an uncrowned Nobel Peace Laureate would never treat people badly, unless they happened to be under the drones on the other side of the world at the wrong time, which, which would be their own fault. We can't blame Donald for that, or his predecessor for that matter. And Donald said his predecessor, another Nobel Peace Laureate, who, like Donald, employed the drones to slaughter terrorist cells like wedding parties in his quest for world peace, had not only cruelly ripped dear little children off their parents, but tortured and executed them after keeping them locked up in rat-infested dungeons. Oh, how the very thought of such inhumanity must burst poor Donald's heart. Speaking of drones and the Minister for Spending Fortunes on Weapons of Mass Destruction, see True Blue Aussie is about to spend lots of taxpayers' hard-earned sending Christopher Payne in there and the Minister for Concentration Camps razor wire and sink the boats and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, soaring over the high seas to protect us from security threats like those seeking refuge. Oh, and evil China, of course. On the consistently inconsistent front, one notion giant mind, that appalling Hoonsun, took a lesson from Donald's book. Not that she needs a mentor in deep thinking and consistency by supporting tax cuts for the filthy rich 132 times for the week and opposing tax cuts for the filthy rich 131 times. And the government was fortunate she was in support mode when the vote was taken. Another minute and who knows? Although there was one ray of hope. That appalling denied she would benefit personally from her vote. Uh, but you will, Ajono asked. Must have been from that commie hotbed, the ABC. No, I mightn't be in the Senate when it comes in. Well, let's hope for once she's spot on. And she was spot on after corporate generator of wealth and jobs, Clive Parmagina, urged her to support more tax cuts for the corporate filthy rich. I don't deal with grubs like that. That appalling screeched, direct quote, no embellishment needed. And we can't disagree with that. Not that the outburst means she won't vote for what she says she won't vote for when it comes to the crunch. No flip-flop, of course, just saying yes and no and yes and no and no flip-flop. And she's correct. Her inconsistency is consistent. As Clive re-emerges as a little ray of hope, 
well, we probably can't call him little, but ray of hope to restore balance to politics, we must agree with tax cuts for the filthy rich corporates, because if poor Clive could get just a little bit of tax relief from the taxes he doesn't pay, then he'd be able to pay all those workers he hasn't paid and who are luxuriating in their poverty in the Townsville environments, enjoying the warmth of the weather and Clive. Although when challenged about owing his workers heaps, Clive reveals his socialist credentials and attacks government, state and federal, for failing in their responsibilities to foot the bill for his workers, showing why he needs to get back into Parliament to show governments what their real responsibilities are. Like, years after a former spook revealed True Blue Aussie was illegally bugging Timor-Leste cabinet and related meetings during diplomatic and commercial negotiations to assist great responsible corporate Wood Steelside getting its hands on Timor-Leste's oil and gas by making it True Blue Aussie oil and gas, the spook and his lawyer have been charged with a heinous crime of exposing an illegality. And the Attorney General Christian Love Thy Neighbour Porter said he could not comment on matters of justice independent of government. Right. Finally, one of the big four world accounting corporates, which knows what's good for all of us, KP on the poor MG, predicts superannuation insurance will rise by 26%, substantially reducing the amount in workers' accounts. Leading an insurance industry spokesperson to declare this was a good thing, as it would make the system fairer. No, listener, I've got no idea either. I'll leave you to work that one out. Good morning. Vote for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Vote for your mic. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and before we talk to Don Sutherland about exploitation taxes and penalty rates, I've got two announcements to make. Today at 2pm uh, there's going to be a seminar on right to strike at the RTBU office that's 365 Queen Street in Melbourne. And so that's at two o'clock. And tomorrow on Sunday, there's going to be a residence meeting at uh, for Grand Place residents and others uh, at 2pm at the Senior Citizens Centre at Peacock Street in West Brunswick. It's opposite the Dunstan Reserve uh, and it's at 2pm as well. 2pm is the lucky number. So that's the uh, for residents and others for, from Grom Place uh, meeting uh, tomorrow, Sunday, 2pm, Senior Citizen Centre, Peacock Street, West Brunswick, opposite Dunstan Reserve. But uh, now, hello Don, how are you? I'm very well, Annie. How are you? I'm good. Uh, it's very cold down here. I don't know what it's like in sunny Sydney, but uh, we've been uh, blessed with incredibly cold weather. <laughs> yes, well, I'm not sure that Sydney compares to that, but it's a blue sky outside and crispy cold in the morning, but it gets quite pleasant as the day goes on. 
Now, as I said to people, we were going to talk about exploitation uh, and I guess taxes and the fact that July the 1st is the first is the uh, opening, opening date for uh, the cutting of uh, penalty rates is a good place to start. Yes, well, uh, I think it is good, it's always a good time to talk about uh, in the union movement and amongst workers about what exploitation is. And, of course, it takes on specific meaning when you talk about the next phase of the cuts to penalty rates that have been ordered by the Fair Work Commission and then also the what is going on in terms of the tax cuts for the big end of town, in income tax cuts, that is, and the government's clear agenda to continue to pursue corporate tax cuts. In both of those instances, the overall effect is that the rate of exploitation of workers is increased. And so I think it is very important that we talk about this concept of exploitation and how it plays out, not just in the raw economics, but in terms of what it means about practical decisions uh, that uh, uh, union leaders and union members need to consider about their strategy and tactics and demands. Uh, yeah, well, because I it's about power, it, isn't it? It's all about power. Ultimately, yes. And how we understand the rationale for what we are struggling for. I think I've said before, and I'll just say this again to emphasise the point that we need to explore. The modern Australian movement's understanding of what exploitation is and how it works is, in my view, and it's a subjective judgment, very poor. And therefore, what will flow from that will be the possibility of quite serious mistakes in uh, okay, so, so making it, and strategy. Yeah, yeah. So uh, w- tell us what you think the weakness is. What, what, why are people not understand? What is it they're not understanding? Well, let's give us some examples. For example, uh, uh, let's take a leader to start with. Uh, a while ago during, her, uh, during an address to the um, a, a public speech, Uh, Sally McManus, who we all admire and respect, said, uh, in talking about the past, quote, it was the power of working people standing shoulder to shoulder and saying no more to exploitation that ended the Master-Servant Act, indentured servitude, work choices and bans on married women in the public service. In fact... A majority of workers and a majority of Australian unions have never said for any extended period of time, and certainly in those struggles, no more to exploitation. Never. It can be argued that at various times in our history and inside those struggles, there were worker leaders who were saying, uh, describing what exploitation was and calling for an end to exploitation, but that was never the dominant uh, sort of theme, and this. this you mean that would be too the, Marxist? Well, it's not. Really, it, we are talking about Marxian ideas, but that's not the critical thing. Whether no. it's Marxian or not, the critical thing is: does it make sense? 
Well, but but, but are you saying, like, I mean, because with exploitation, what you're really saying, it's like with Humphrey. Humphrey will say, Humphrey McQueen will say, every every worker arrangement with a boss is exploitative, even if you're earning $200,000. Yes, that is correct. And, and that is because during each moment of a working day, the worker is producing new value that ends up having a price, but only is paid for a portion of what they have produced. And that can be shown, as we'll discuss shortly, uh, a couple of other points to come first, uh, but we can sh- that can be shown by a look at the uh, national accounts figures that are produced by uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I think... The way in which exploitation and the understanding of it is so important is when you compare it to discrimination. In our movement at the present time, I think the newly emerging activists and their leaders uh, demonstrate a very strong grasp of discrimination and including a strong grasp of the law of discrimination, which for except for notorious exceptions, like in regards to the intervention in the Northern Territory against Aboriginal communities. But in general, the discrimination law, the purpose of it is to prevent discrimination. There is no such You mean it, the name is what it is. How extraordinary. It, it's like well, reform is not reform anymore. Uh, well, I'm not sure that I would <laughs> put it like that, but I think... I mean, it's a Georgia Orwellian thing, you know, the business about war equals peace and peace equals, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. The Ministry for Peace. and Yes. Anyway, go on. Go on. The essential thing about discrimination law is that its purpose is to prevent it. Yeah, that's right. This is widely understood and is used, therefore, by all sorts of activists to ensure that any instance of discrimination that falls within the bounds of the law is challenged and ultimately programs are put in place to try and reduce it and prevent it. And, 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 and what you're really saying is that because they've done that, people understand what discrimination actually means because people have actually thought about it, they've actually broken it down, and the law actually reflects that work. And, and that leads on, exactly, and that leads on into very effective campaigning. Right. And uh, so, but the same saw, thing hasn't example, been done for exploitation. No, that's that. That is my. That is what I am putting forward at the moment. Now, we're, the way in which it plays out in a sort of strategy and tactical point of view, and therefore relates to the change the rules campaign, is that all workers share in common the experience of exploitation even though the intensity of exploitation can vary from one part of the workforce to another. For example, um, uh, women in waged employment experience a more intense rate of exploitation than men in general. Yeah, that's right. uh, And so there are different rates of exploitation, but every worker experiences it. And therefore, that provides the rationale for the unifying of workers in struggles. 
Discrimination can, can, can does we, not do that. No, can we get to that thing about you point out that that uh, women are disproportionately disrespected within the economic system, uh, and uh, and that exploitation is increased, and and we and we can see this particularly in in the penalty rates cuts, can't we? Yes, well, uh, the the common experience of women, of course, is that there is a significant wages gap. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, and that gap can vary from one industry oh, and, and or one sort of the... occupation to another, but uh, that means that the women experience a more intense rate of exploitation than male workers. But each have in common that they are being exploited by their employer in the process of producing the total new uh, wealth that the employer derives from employing them. Now, since this, now, uh, a, since this, to, this government, sorry, uh, the, since this government has uh, successfully and uh, crushed, you know, made it illegal to strike, all these different things, and 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 the latest one was the federal uh, court saying that uh, individuals can be charged uh, financially without uh, unions being able to support them in the payment of any of these fines. Uh, that's just been passed for anything that's supposed to be a contravention of the ABCC arrangements. So, you know, uh, an individual can be charged $19,000 out of their own pocket, this sort of stuff. Um, uh, the, more that you suppress- the, the level of disrespect is increasing to the point of... Uh, one of the, my pet, pet ones is that they, people have to sign these clauses saying that they aren't allowed to say anything negative about their employee, the employer, for example, when they're not working. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the more you suppress uh, workers' rights to organise, uh, and that, that suppression, that oppression... Uh, can take many forms in the law, and what you've described as the the recent decision in regard to the payment of fines incurred because of breaches of the Fair Work Act is just one form in which uh, the law is being uh, enacted and then pursued in order to suppress the power of workers to resist the rate of exploitation that they are are exposed to. so, yes, the law does come into it, but it, uh, the end result is that we have across the board, and then you can look at it also industry by industry, uh, we have this rate of exploitation that all workers have in common, and therefore that is the, that is the foundation for developing a more powerful and common strategy and also for focusing that strategy on the key demands that bring workers together across the different uh, industries, different occupations, different union groups, and so on. The uh, so that Humphrey talks about it, I think, very well in terms of Marxian ideas, and that I have no problem with that. But it plays out more importantly in how workers experience their day-to-day working lives. And then it plays out at the other end of the spectrum in the way in which we can look at the uh, economic information that comes, that is reported. And that comes from the data collected by the Australian Bureau of Statistics. 
And so, so what are they showing? What are they showing these figures? Well, what they sh- to get at them, you have to do a bit of playing around because the Australian Bureau of Statistics does not actually present the data that gives you an exact measure, but it gives you a pretty reliable indicator. And what they show is that the rate of exploitation of the Australian workforce as a whole since about September 2005 has never fallen below 100%. And at the moment is running at around 110 and 111%. So in other words, employers are expropriating Mm. more, uh, uh, more than the same as they are paying out in wages. Considerably. Taking unto themselves. Considerable uh, uh, amount. Slightly more than the value of wages, even though that surplus has been produced by the workers and not by them. But, of course, that surplus then becomes the their wellspring for their decisions, decisions that they make, even though they have not produced that surplus that they make about their investment. And we had, the. this is where we come back to people like the Reserve Bank Governor having a whinge in front of all those manufacturing employers because they're not investing in hard new technology. They're investing in software and they're playing around on the stock market and all those sort of things. So what is happening with the surplus and the rate of exploitation, if you like, plays out in terms of the job creation contradiction, that job, new jobs that workers can count on are not being produced through employers' control of the surplus. Well, surprise, surprise. Is, surprise, surprise. <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> the ways in which we get misled in our own heads how do we because our understanding in our union movement uh, basically embraces a way of thinking about exploitation that favors the boss yeah of course because it's and an unconscious bias yeah. this is why we talk about we have to get the bosses sitting on our shoulder or sitting inside a corner of our brain telling us to think about exploitation in terms like well, all I want is a fair day's work for a fair day, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work. It's not possible in the system we live in. No. There is no such thing as a fair day's pay. Uh, it is based upon exploitation. And we have to make a decision at some stage. If we say that discrimination is so wrong that it should be prevented, when are we going to say that exploitation is so wrong that it should be prevented. And what does that involve in terms of how we pursue campaigns like Change the Rules? The the final thing I think that in the time that we have, I suppose, is that I think we get a clue about the possibilities when we think about the... Uh, the 65,000-plus years of Aboriginal First Nations management of the Australian landmass. Because what we see over that whole period is a means of managing the social and physical environment and their interrelationship 
in a way that is not exploitative, either of nature or of humans. Now, we're not saying let's go back to that form of living. Of course not. What the employers want us to think is that it is simply not possible to have any future development in human society that is not based upon exploitation. Our challenge is to say, how do we envision it? How do we think about a 21st century society with a much greater population living on, living in the landmass, all of the landmasses of the world, in fact? How can, what sort of envision, how do we envision the sort of society and then how do we get there? What is the strategy to pursue it? And that must mean that we get to grips with understanding exploitation, not just discrimination, and committing ourselves to challenging and defeating exploitation, not just managing so managing it, not just managing it, so that there are small improvements here and there for brief periods of time. Yes, that's right. That's a big... Uh that's a gauntlet that you've thrown on the ground there for people to pick up and to run with, right? Getting to grips with exploitation means that we increase the capacity of our movement to unite it, to bring together currently non-unionised workers with unionised workers because what they both have in common is they are exploited. And to uniting the worker who was on 120 grand an hour, who is probably and possibly being exploited at a sharper rate than the worker who might be employed on $20 an hour. Yeah, it's really interesting you should say that because uh, when you talk to people who actually work in the banks that are being investigated, these, are, these people work in an environment where they work hideous amounts of overtime, but if they were to log their overtime, it's look, they're looked down on and they b- yes. won't be uh, advanced through the ranks. The, the, the employer's control of overtime and also staggered starts, all of those sorts of things are all about increasing the period of time a worker is at work that they are producing that surplus that the boss expropriates. So whenever an employer wants to play around with and control in some way the accounting of the amount of overtime that a worker engages in, Uh, and how much it is paid, all of those sorts of things, and this goes to the penalty rates question as well, then they are talking about what they are seeking to do is to increase the the surplus that they expropriate to themselves so that then they can make the decisions about how much they will take of that for their personal wealth, how much they will take to invest to increase their personal wealth, how much they will take to invest in a new factory offshore or how much they will take to invest and development a productive enterprise inside Australia's boundaries. That is what it is all about when we're talking about overtime. And that applies in all parts of the economy and just about all occupations. And this is also the reason for why you have a government that uh, doesn't care that uh, industries are developed but people don't get proper local jobs? 
Uh, yes. Well, the, uh, the 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 role of this government, and I think also in the cases well established on the evidence about exploitation, also of Labor governments, is to make it possible for employers to uh, uh, to maintain and increase the rate of exploitation. And we have to develop an entirely different character of both the both of the alternative parties and of the movement that surrounds them. That is, I'm talking about the ALP and the Greens. They have to change in significant ways to truly grasp what is going on with the exploitation of the Australian workforce. And it requires the, strategy. It doesn't require, please, sir, give me more. It involves a lot more than just give me more. The give me more demand, the increase, the struggle for wages to improve wages is critical to, uh, as an element, as in a critical, it's an essential element of the strategy to defeat exploitation because the first, it's the first step in defying the rate of exploitation that the boss wants to impose. But then it must be a lot more. If we take, for example, our understanding of privatisation, exploitation, the understanding exploitation means that when it comes to uh, taking back failed privatised enterprises, we don't pay any compensation. That's right. I agree. Anyway, yeah. we've got to finish yeah. it there. That that is such a good point to to finish at. All of a sudden, these people that you know, you their hands out for stuff because for somehow or other, their business interests have been def- uh, is more important than people having food on their table. It's unbelievable stuff. Let's, anyway. let's nail it with one small point that I was taught in my first year or so in a factory. Yeah, uh, a worker said to me one day, "Look, when the boss." grizzles about us going on strike. He's not really grizzling. He says, you know, how terrible it is. We're going to lose our wages for two or three days or a week or whatever. He couldn't give us stuff about that. What he's interested in is total revenue minus wages equals his profit. That's what he's grizzling about, but he never says that. (laughs) And that's where you have a worker's explanation of the character of exploitation. Thanks for talking to us today, Don. We'll get back to some more uh, immediate things, perhaps, next time we talk. Bye-bye. That was Don Sutherland. You're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We're coming to the end of the program. In fact, we're right at the edge of the end of the program. Uh, We uh, heard about a film called Disaster Capitalism, part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. It's on July the 7th. Uh, we went to the anti-fascist rally on that was held here in Melbourne on July the twenty fourth, uh, June the twenty fourth, uh, Sunday last week. Uh, we went up to Queensland and found out about uh, yet another university that is prepared to take uh, millions of dollars from uh, uh, social miscreants and uh, big business. And uh, we followed that with "This is the week that was no mishaps there." And then we talked about exploitation in uh, an Australian workforce context with Don Sutherland. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with one of my favourites.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.